Welcome to the Red Dove, our story center on Black women, activism, and mental health. I'm Liz. I'm Blue. I'm Rainy. And tonight we're going to tell the story of Black Wall Street, also known as the Greenwood District. And um, this one was brought up by Blue. And this is not the Tulsa massacre. We are going to concentrate on how the district formed, what it looked like all the way up to about 1920, 1921 before the massacre. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. In the wake of the Civil War, Black Americans attained freedom from chattel slavery, but continued to suffer discrimination, both legal and in the form of Jim Crow laws and de facto perception amongst the vast majority of white Americans that Black Americans were at the very least inferior and at the most a constant dangerous presence in their communities who must be carefully controlled. I mean, and that's where you're kind of seeing eugenics come into play, people being born into families and the idea of social Darwinism and, you know, like African-Americans were physically and evolutionarily incapable of being at the same level as white people. And they had this kind of stuff in textbooks at this time. And if you live in Texas, maybe still in your textbook. Probably. Mm. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, footnote, I saw in the news that the Texas governor is trying to introduce a, like an alternative to the 1619 project. And I forget what it's called, but it's hella racist. Of course it is, because these people who are all banning this critical race theory don't even know what the hell they're talking about. They literally have no idea what they are talking about and they're morons. And it makes me absolutely livid. Sorry, done. Never never be done on this show. <laughs> <laughs> this um, reminded me of uh, when we read So You Want to Talk About Race by Hijoma Oluo, where she was explaining what is racism and how that there's a component of this that's economic suppression for an economic result for the 1%. And here's a great example of it. Black Americans built much of the nation's infrastructure through its first century of existence, but had no ancestral access to wealth, lived under a status scarcely above an enslaved person. Black Americans' efforts to demonstrate equal intelligence, worthiness of education, aspirations toward tangible success, and the drive to prosper was counterproductive to a white system dependent on their continued sub- subjugation. That's that's kind of what I talk to my students about too, is like that you don't treat human beings poorly when you think they are of your same level. So for people to be able to treat people the way they did, the first thing you have to do is dehumanize them. You have mm. to make exceptions for them. That's where I, we have social Darwinism and these ideas of eugenics. It's to marry the idea that this person is not worthy in your head so you can treat them poorly. You don't treat Mm -hmm. people poorly that you see as your equal. Mm. Lincoln's, can you hear my kids yelling? Okay, good. Hey guys, I'm recording. Sorry, a little technical difficulty with some (laughs) offspring. I kept my favorite child in here, my dog, Ray, who's (laughs) a Star Wars character. Yeah, she's my uh, companion. Anyway. Lincoln's emancipation signaled a technical status of freedom for Black Americans, but it did not in any sense guarantee social equality or equity. Every pursuit of employment began with a racial disadvantage. 
and the Jim Crow laws in the South effectively reinstated a constraint on much of Black Americans' range of movement, opportunity, and right to civic participation. By the approach of the 20th century, two strategies had come to the forefront for Black advancement. Booker T. Washington envisioned a rise in his culture's formal, former enslaved person status by developing a, quote, general usefulness in what would now be known as blue-collar labor or basic agricultural skills. However, for W.E.B. Du Bois, is it W? It's W.E. Yeah, W.E.B. Thank you. For W.E.B. Du Bois, the underlying equation of subservience was unchanged as Black Americans moved from slave labor to poorly paid lackeys at the lowest level of white business. Du Bois had a different vision. Black Americans stand up and declare their right to prosperity, education, and status within an economic system predisposed to shutting them out. Then there was a third idea. Black Americans gained their footing that in developmental terms combined Washington and Du Bois models. Cultural and physical isolation, entrepreneurship, self-help, and internally generated profit. Black business interests managed to rid themselves of white hierarchy in a few areas on the East Coast and in the Midwest. Land was bought and sold exclusively within the Black community, and the currency generated remained in the Black system. All kinds of businesses were established in monoracial enclaves with assistance from Black lending institutions devoted to increased opportunity for Black American success. The most well-known example of these communities rose out of the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. What was to become known as Black Wall Street or the Greenwood District led the region in high level financing and demonstrated sophisticated investment skills that outpaced the city norm. The school system became a model of success and residents bought fine homes, maintained an opulent social life and became patron of the arts. The Greenwood District of Tulsa was not the only example of socioeconomic triumph. So here's some Red Dove optional homework. You can Google these on your own time. And if you'd like to tell a story, maybe write it up and send it to us and maybe we'll read it on the air. Um, there was the Jackson Ward of Richmond, Virginia, which became the quote, epicenter of black banking. There's Haiti, North Carolina, they created the North Carolina Life Insurance, which became the wealthiest Black-owned company in the state. There's also Little Harlem of Birmingham, Alabama, Marcus Garvey's Harlem in New York City, and in the following decades, Woolley, Oklahoma. So this is, go ahead, sorry. I think that's a great idea to have, um, like for our listeners to write in and share some of their history because there is so much that still, you know, as we spoke about, and even now you all mentioned at the beginning of this episode, there's still um, information in the textbooks that's incorrect. So if you know something and you'd like to share it, let us check it out. We'd definitely be interested in hearing about it. I think it's so important also to focus on black excellence. I mean, so often in our history textbooks, you know, people think that African-American history started on Plymouth Rock, you know, and mm -hmm. the two big things of 
our history is slavery and the civil rights movement. And there's so much more to our history than that. We don't, we don't talk about it enough, right? We don't talk about how in the event, in, in the midst of all of this economic hardship that they were literally systems put in place to keep them down, the excellence of black Americans to rise above sanctioned racism right. to still create wealth within the black community goes to show how very ingenuitive and creative and and pers uh, and, and and persistent black yes. America is. Yes. And we don't celebrate that nearly enough. We talk about black Americans as victims sometimes at, you know, like, oh, this horrible thing happened to them with slavery. And then, you know, we, we, our history is mired in violence and that's true, but it is also really rich in beauty and in wealth. And we don't talk about it enough. So I'm really glad that that's what we're focusing on with this story. I agree. I agree. And it's funny that you say that you know, it's, it is, there is a lot of violence. The only thing is we weren't fighting alone. So, you know, we have to remember that component. I think you definitely brought up some great points, Rainy, about um, even how you spoke to hard work and, and, and the excellence that occurred, right? So whenever, like, if I want to lift a weight, I have to push against the strength of the weight itself, right? And that is the way that we need to, um, and we are attempting to help people understand. First of all, like I always say to people, black people are just people, right? Like that's the first thing we are. You did an excellent job explaining earlier about uh, how we have been, or people attempt to continue to uh, treat us inhumanely and, and really dehumanize us in, in the context in which they speak um, regarding about whether it's, it's our personal life, it's, it's business, finances, et cetera. Just going back to that piece of black excellence and really like staying there for a minute because a lot, you are so right. You hit that right on the head. People really are confused and you have to really think like, why would someone fight against something if it wasn't, you know, a diamond? So mm -hmm. what, you know, let's, let's put that change that you know flip that switch i i love what you're saying Thank flip you. it and reverse it and happy birthday miss elliot when we're, we're recording today she turned 50 today she loves missy elliot this girl first of all that's like her number one quote <laughs> second of all she's like always talking about missy like <laughs> she loves missy we were just talking about missy the other day though like i love Listen. missy too yeah i remember Yes, I was just telling you guys the other day, you ladies, when um I we I remember the first time hearing she's a bitch on um the radio and they were playing it and I was like, oh, you just say bitch on the radio now. Like I was so excited because those were like new things for us as women, but I digress. <laughs> that came up, you uh educated me because the first time I heard Megan Thee Stallion Savage. I like had to sit down. I was like, oh my God, this is modern day feminism in a song. And, and then I talked to you, I was like, have you heard this? And you're like, bitch, listen to some Missy Elliott. She's yeah. not the first. <laughs> yes, I was like, we gotta go. And I mean, Missy again, like definitely um, stood on the shoulders of others. Queen Latifah, Jersey native, definitely gotta shout her out. 
I mean, so many, I'm, we're not even, that's not even what this episode is about, but it's awesome speaking about black excellence, how we can jump on that and then just continue down the lane of, um, you know, what that looks like within our community. So yeah, I love it. Yes. Happy birthday, Missy. Woo, happy Woo. birthday, Missy. And congratulations. Oh my God, just, her name just escaped me. You just said her name. Oh, Queen Latifah, are you talking about her award that she just got? Yes! It was a Lifetime Achievement, I believe, right? Yeah. BET Awards, yes. yes. And, and she publicly, for the first time, acknowledged her partner, Ebony, you know, because she's never really been, wow. she's never really been, you know, vocal about her sexuality, which is nobody's damn business anyway. Right. But, mm-hmm. you know, she acknowledged her partner, Ebony, and their son together, and it was just a really cool moment, not just for black women, but for, you know, women in the LGBTQ plus community too. This sure. her make it in such a beautiful way and for her to live life on her own terms, right? She was like, I will be this how I want to be. And no one's going to tell me when I'm going to come out. I'll come out on my own damn time. And it's beautiful. I loved it. And she looked amazing. And oh, I got chills when she said it. I was like, oh, yay. Right. <laughs> And I'm sorry, but since we're riding this Black Excellence train, let's talk about who's going to be at the Olympics, though. Like, um, can we bring up Shakari Richardson killing it? Like, I am living in her zone right now of stop playing with me. Stop playing with me. Stop playing with me. Like, that's where we are coming from right now. So, yes, yes, yes. Rubbing my hands together and saying, mm. Oh, these Olympics are going to be lit. Lit. Yes. Oh, yes. There's going to be a lot of noisemakers there. It's going to be real loud. Those, those pictures. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, land, yes. sea, and air. We have in all the different categories Black women representation. Yes. Yes. Killing it. Ugh. And it's always been there, right? And so the, the question is well, then why doesn't our history books reflect this? Sure. So that's kind of why. The three of us off air are big history lovers. And part of the idea of the show that started with Dovetails is to create a lexicon, if you will, of uh, stories that have been left out of public education's history books for whatever reason. But I digress, as the brilliant Blue would say. Back to Tulsa. The establishment of Black prosperity in Tulsa came about as the culmination of several factors. The first being the destruction of the American South. The post-Civil War years comprised of an era of migrations from Native Americans forced reallocation and genocide and Black Americans leaving the Jim Crow South. Lincoln's emancipation did not alter the caste system of the South. The white overlords were determined to retain Black labor under an alternate set of legal restraints. I mean, and that was one of the biggest problems with the emancipation, not the emancipation itself, but there was nothing put in place, right? So these people who had lived on these plantations for their whole lives and didn't know how to read, didn't have any sort of money, then one day they're free and like, well, off you go. And no infrastructure was put in place. There was nothing to help. And then, you know, you had these white Southerners who just lost everything and there's nothing in place either on their end to help them with this new world order. So 
it was really just like, here, we're going to like make things, we're going to switch things up, but then you guys figure it out on your own. And, you know, it, it laid way for the evils and the ugliness of the Jim Crow South and why it has such a lasting reputation. The South has such a terrible reputation for being such a dangerous place because it has never been reconciled. It has never healed properly. We've just kind of let it fester in the corner. Capitalism. Woohoo. <laughs> Great bulk of this American South was barren and unproductive after the uh, swooping Union invasions. The most affected were the white farmers above all others. Eking out a bare existence for black sharecroppers left them constantly on the borders of bankruptcy and starvation. Deep dive coming up. Stay tuned. We're going deep into the life of Fannie Lou Hammer. And we're also uh, developing an episode about Zora Neale Hurston. So it's really fitting that we start here in history because as we might, as the black Americans are migrating from the South, we'll be able to take some deep dives into some really exciting, amazing women that were doing the same thing at the same time. Uh, the Democratic Party established Jim Crow to sustain white supremacy in the region. It was a, uh, basically, if you're not familiar, Jim Crow is a, a tangible state and local statutes controlling Black Americans' behavior, keeping Black Americans legally subjugated uh, well into the mid-20th century. Jim Crow maintained a state of segregation, suppressed the rights of non-whites to vote, uh, barred access to formal education, and set a strict code of public behavior, which is still present in some cities of the South today. Stay tuned. We also have another episode coming up of something going on right now, 2021, that's still coming out of this Jim Crow. So this has not left us yet. And and the thing about Jim Crow, I actually, I, I taught To Kill a Mockingbird this year with my students. So I we did a deep, deep dive into Jim Crow and what it means. And one of the most surprising things about Jim Crow is a lot of the laws were not actually laws. We talked a lot about the customs. Some of the worst states to be a Black American in, in the South, did not have very many formal Jim Crow laws. Like Alabama and Mississippi, they didn't have formal Jim Crow laws written down because the custom was so entrenched within the community that you did not need these laws. So walking around, you know, like you said, how African-Americans, especially Black men, how they interacted with white Americans, it was just ingrained. And everyone just expected you to know what the deal was. And any sort of infraction or infringement on those norms could lead to a, a very swift um, a very swift end, right? And you dealt with repercussions on both ends. As a white person, you, if you were seen breaking Jim Crow laws or customs, you could be ostracized. You could be excommunicated from church sometimes. People would not have you around, right? So, you know, you could lose out money on your family. Um, and on the Black side, you faced a lot more physical consequences, a lot more punitive punishments, you know, from being beaten to even lynched, right, because of these customs that were in place. So it held everybody hostage at that time, you know, even white people who weren't able to do those past those norms, you know, so reading even through To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch, 
you know, certain things could and could not be done because of the customs and what was safe and what was not safe. And Mississippi and Alabama were the worst. Yep. Sorry, I'll stop being a teacher. <laughs> no, I think those are great points. And I think that um, something else to highlight with that going off, continuing with the way it controls the mind, right? Is like when we, even when we use the words of worse and like better or comparing when it comes to, to racism, it's so interesting because it's still continued so far through the country when we think about it. And this is literally just throwing an abstract thought out there, right? But by tying someone's mind and making them a prisoner of their mind and unable to provide for themselves, provide for their families, causing them, and, and like you're saying, the norms, you know, even like more recently, something that's more local to us is the whole idea. We know it comes up in Philly every um, summer, you know, the kids want to be out riding their bikes, skateboarding, doing all of that, but Black kids just aren't supposed to be around in groups. But, you know, where I am, I see plenty of white kids in groups doing the same exact thing, riding their bikes, riding their skateboards. But because, again, like you're saying, the norms of what we're supposed to do, right? And when you think about that, because I was explaining to someone earlier about the way that systematic racism works, right? So if I make it so that you can't ride your bike in the city or just like based upon these norms, right? That causes your muscles not to develop at the same rate who someone else who, who has the ability to move around freely within their community. That limits your thought because a bike is a machine, right? So if I'm not around machines as often, these are simple machines, things that we've all learned about as kids, I'm not able to project and dream. In addition to that, if I'm not able to just get exercise, my body will not last as long as the next part party so just like you're saying it's very very interesting because the effects of Jim Crow are so evident in so many different places and the um the punishments were very very crippling and it's unfortunate just like you're saying too because sometimes not that those stories always need to be the first to be read but it is good to give light too to the fact that there was a large um, I, there was a portion of the community that did, even if they just didn't see color, right, in quotation marks, they still couldn't even act upon those, that thought of just trying to interact with, you know, white people interacting with Black people. So like you're saying, it affected a larger space than just the Black community. Right. And, and we still see it today. And, and it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think, right, Blue? Like, when you tell a people, not you, not you, it's not your turn. And like you said, like shackling their minds, which is one of the cruelest yes. things you can do to a people, right? Is making them think that they are incapable of greatness. Yep. Then it becomes a self-fulfilling process. Then they aren't, they don't rise to those occasions because they've been taught time and time and time again, they are incapable of it, right? Right. You know, the same reason why white, slave owners and, and kidnappers and colonizers made sure to make it illegal to teach their enslaved people to read. Right. You couldn't even, even though that was your quote unquote property, by law, you couldn't teach your own person. They right. knew it was that dangerous. Right. Freeing your mind is the first thing in 
rebellion and revolution. And they knew they did not want that. So true. And that's how they kept keeping us there. Again, it's this, this self-fulfilling prophecy. African-Americans aren't any smarter or dumber than anyone else. But if you continue to tell people that and continue to tell them that you, because of social Darwinism, you can never achieve these great things after a while, you, you know, a lie told how many times begins to become the truth. Right. Right. And that's, that's the nefarious thing I think about this whole thing is just like, not even just physically, but the mental, yes, the mental slavery that this country has put blacks in for 400 years and it continues. Yeah. Even like by you using the word norm, right. That's deep because that when, if, if it's a norm of my culture, then if I do anything against that, I, there's a problem with me, right? There is something that is not right with me. If I, right. If I break the law, then I might be like, entitled you get what i'm saying like it's a different thought process but by by saying that and really ingraining it as you're saying i never thought about it from that perspective of it being the norm rather than the law because that changes a lot about how you think of yourself that's that's a great point and that's what we talked a lot to my students uh, with my students about because you can change laws but yes. you cannot change hearts and minds and that's what keeps customs going. Definitely. And that's why you could change the laws and emancipate the slaves, but you didn't change the hearts of anybody. Right. And that's how we got Jim Crow. And that's right. how we got all of this ugliness that came after the Civil War because hearts and minds and customs are a thousand times harder to change. Speaking of which, fun fact this is the origin story of cops. The code was overseen by former Confederate soldiers who took up positions as post-war police officers, judges, and politicians. And behind the entire phenomenon loomed the Ku Ku Klux Klan. And we all know them. They're the white domestic terrorist group keeping non-white Americans down through acts of violence and intimidation. So for those of you that hear about like... um, some activists are, are calling for abolishing the police. Um, I just want you to be quiet for a second and think and do some of your research. And I want you to understand the origin story of the cops is a direct result of this racism. It started out as being called, quote unquote, I think it was runaway slave patrol. And then it evolved into like enforcing these codes. So whether you agree with the position or not, respect it. And if you're white, be quiet and listen, because their perspective, those that, that uh, advocate for abolishing the police, is that uh, the police system born out of racism and oppression will never be right for the community. It's kind of like a page one rewrite. Like we, we're still going to be safe in our communities, but it's not gonna be through um, police departments and things like that. So sorry, little footnote there. But that's how they started. That's history. Deal with it. At the same time, the laws against personal rights grew more severe than in the years prior to the Civil War. The Supreme Court's decision in Plessy v. Ferguson gave way to an ever-increasing state of segregation 
and allowed for separate facilities and services between white and African Americans. The phrase, quote, separate but equal, end quote, is associated with this decision, but it wasn't equal. Fun fact, money was regularly diverted from African American school systems and funneled into white schools. White teacher salaries rose on a per pupil basis, while African American schools fell into a sharp decline. Again, with the mind, education, crippling us at the knees where we need it the most. Education is how you get out of those situations. And that's exactly why they did that, to keep African-Americans down. An intelligent, engaged, activated person cannot be held in shackles in their mind. So that's why they did this. This is, this is exactly, oh, sorry. It just makes me very upset. <laughs> Don't apologize. That's very important to bring up because that is essentially why so many of us feel, like you said, we fulfill the prophecy because we just haven't tapped into that other component. And that is why, you know, Liz, like you've really brought that to my attention and really constantly using that phrase of systematic racism, systematic racism, systematic racism, because even when we, we talk about, you know, um, food injustice and things like that, you are affecting people's brain development. And that is another level, like you're saying that that's cutting you off before you even have a chance. You know, when we study the effects of poverty, it directly affects the brain, the, the neurons, um, those things connecting, all of these based upon trauma, not being able to get the nutrients that you need, even as we spoke about earlier, physical activity. and by closing all of those doors, you don't have a choice. You really don't have a choice. It's, it's a lot harder, just like we're, we're kind of hinting upon right now too, um, when we think about equity and specifically in schools. If I have to run up a hill to meet you at the top of the hill, I mean, what okay. do you think is gonna happen? Clearly I will be out of breath by the time I get there and I'll need a nap. Clearly, you'll just be ready to start. That makes complete sense. It does not mean that you are more intelligent, more deserving or better by any means. And it doesn't mean that the other person is any less than. It just means that it's inequitable. That's all, you know, it's it's black and white. That's black and white, but <laughs> ebony and ivory. But no, sorry, corny jokes. But yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's, it's just what it is. There's no other extra to it. If you, if we're competing, and I am halfway, I'm, I'm 100 meters behind you. I'm working harder to get to where you are. That's clear. It's that reminds oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. Sorry, white girl, stop interrupting the black women. No. <laughs> no, that was on me. Go ahead, Liz. No, no, you first. I was just going to say in one of my classes, we do um, the privilege walk and you know maybe you guys have seen this done you know you start everybody out on the line and then you you know say things out loud you know and for everything that's true for you you get to take a step forward you know so um if you have two parents in the home take a step forward if you have never worried about your safety walking home at night take a step forward if you have a parent who's incarcerated take a step back right and so you give all of these all of these different scenarios 
to people. And all of these are things that are not within their control. There's nothing anybody did, especially to have these things. This is just these privileges or disadvantages they have. And by the end, you turn around and you look and almost every time you see, most of the time, most kids of color or people of color are closer to the back. And then you have a lot of white um, people in the front, right? And then you say, okay, so if we started this race now with all of your positions here, who gets to the finish line first? Right. And is it fair that you get to the finish line first? Are you any more capable or athletic than the person who's 50 steps behind you? Right. Because did you earn your place up here and did they earn their place down there, back right. there? And that's something that we do with, I do with my students to kind of explain like white privilege is not this scary, awful word that, you know, black people accuse white people of because we don't have enough. It's literally what this is. It's just, you're born with a backpack of advantages that you didn't earn. And it doesn't make you a bad person, but you have to acknowledge them and you can't pretend like, hey, I got here by my own, you know, willpower. That's not true. No, you didn't. Well, all of these things that we've been discussing at the same time, this is what led to a massive northward migration of African-American workers. So some African-American workers moved north. The pay was significantly better, but uh, African-Americans did not rise out of the unskilled category in the north. So north-minded folks don't be sitting back and being comfortable We had our own version of Jim Crow discrimination, oppression, and racism, okay? And then some uh, Black Americans migrated west. The Oklahoma Territory ended up being a prime arrival point, thanks in part to our federal government, quote unquote, requesting Americans to, quote, reduce Cheyenne, shout out to Buffalo Calf Road Woman, Comanche and Apaho lands once accomplished, the federal government allowed both white and black Americans eligible for land in that territory. They, um, this was the federal government wiping out, murdering, killing Native Americans, indigenous people that were here first. This is like putting different groups, pitting them against each other because like, by doing that, they were like, hey, like, can you just, you know, exterminate this race for us so we can get this state and we'll give you land. Hey, African-Americans, you too, buddy, you get a, you get land. And that was rare for African-Americans at this time to get land, but that was enticing to African-Americans and white Americans, quite frankly. Initially, Southern African-Americans solved the area as a possibility for the creation of town and colonies in which they could experience their political rights without interference from Southern oppression. They were enticed to the region by figures such as Edwin McCabe. Uh, Edwin was a politician and businessman and was largely responsible for the African-American settlement of the Oklahoma territory. He realized that Oklahoma could serve as a quote, haven from racism and be, and be profitable, end quote. McCabe arrived at the future site of Langston, Oklahoma and established the Langston City Herald. He owned a bulk of the available plots of land 
And he started posting advertisements in the Herald declaring the region to be, quote, the paradise of Eden and the garden of the gods, end quote. So he uh, purchased 320 acres and single-handedly established the new town of Langston, which fun fact, he named it for a recently elected black congressman. McCabe hoped that the number of black settlers would in time propel him into the governor's office by the time of statehood. However, his dreams fell short when the new state, Oklahoma, adopted Jim Crow statutes and segregated public transportation. McCabe sold his house to fight the new laws, but the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the state's legislature. McCain died a dearly disappointed and relatively impoverished man in Chicago during the peak of the coming financial empire in the Greenwood district of Tulsa. So McCabe starts Langston, Oklahoma, and it would, and now here comes Greenwood. Wealthy area due to the discovery of oil in 1905, several financial stars came together in the atmosphere of mutual assistance to create the best of an all black culture in the Oklahoma region. The Greenwood district made sure that they would be included in the feast of oil by controlling their own money in every step of the process. 126 oil companies were operational in and around the city, but the first years of the 20th century and the following decade, 11,000 black Tolsons would come to reside in the area. For example, Jake Simmons Jr., he became the leading black entrepreneur in the entire oil industry, despite his relatively late arrival in Greenwood. Uh, the most illustrious of all the Midwestern black enclaves, the Greenwood district lived up to the promise inherent in McCabe's efforts in Langston. So kind of bittersweet for McCabe. Greenwood district was established uh, years before Oklahoma became a state and soon housed a population of 10,000 people and served as the most active affluent entity of black American business and culture in the nation. The single street around which the entire enterprise function was called Greenwood Avenue. And this in particular is where it intersected with Archer Street. Ironically, the broad Central Avenue was the only major thoroughfare that did not cross the tracks into the virtually all white Tulsa. The interaction of Greenwood and Archer housed the headquarters of the district. Okay, so this is a perfect time to break. Um, we're about to start talking about the rise of the Black Wall Street, AKA Greenwood. So, hey, we did another part two, ladies. Maybe we'll make a part three. Who knows? Look at Sounds that. Sounds good. Woo-woo. All right. Thanks for coming and thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review on Apple Podcast. Thank you, Rainy, and thank you, Blue, for coming on and being part of the show and doing this show with me. I, I can't do it without you. And most importantly, I love doing it with you. Thank you. Of course. I love doing it, too. Yes. All right. Until next time.